0: This is the Semper Doctrina Podcast, a place to discuss theology with the hope of leading us to doxology. What is up, everyone? We are here yet again, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Noah Costello.
1: Hello, everyone, and good morning.
0: Good morning, indeed. So we just gave away what time we're recording this, so... I may have still nine, that like low gravelly nine. morning, like that just amazing man voice, right?
1: Yeah, because I haven't talked to anybody else this morning. So, because <laughs> <So, laughs> I'm too antisocial.
0: Yeah, you know <coughs> it. It's fine. Um, so, it's before fine. we just get onto this rambling bit of just trying to <laughs> make the introduction entertaining, uh, we have a few announcements before we get to our topic today. The first one is. Something I have been promising on social media, and we are finally going to get to it. It is the book giveaway. What up, everyone? That is super exciting. So the book that we are giving away is Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. Uh, Both Noah and I can kind of speak to this book a little bit because we had to read it for our undergrad, and I honestly do think it is one of the easiest, most comprehensive church history books to read. Uh, Noah, do you have any comments on this book?
1: Uh, I would agree. I think it's, honestly, it's a good, a really good starting place for church history. It's pretty thorough, um, very accessible in terms of its readability. Um, each chapter, I think, is about 10 to 12 pages, so they're not huge chunks. Um, and I think Shelley does a really good job of not pro- providing a, um, he doesn't come at it with a particular bias, Um, He's just doing a very good job, I think, of articulating the history of the church, um, just kind of stating the facts and and getting you acquainted with those big names and moments and movements in church history. Um, So if you are looking to try and get kind of a good overview of church history, just kind of dip your toe in the water and familiarize yourself with it, I think this is maybe one of the best places to start um, your study of church history.
0: Yeah. Yeah so this book again it's just an amazing book uh if you do not win this book i highly suggest you go out and purchase this book but how can you win this book what we are going to do is we are going to ask that you share this episode or really just any Simper doctrina episode one that may be your favorite and just share it on your social media platform if it's on instagram it can be on your main page or just simply in your story Uh, if it's on facebook go ahead and put that on your actual page and then tag Simper Doctrina just so people can get to us um, and, and get to see some of our content. The other thing is it may be beneficial just to shoot me a quick message um, on Instagram. If you know me personally, feel free to send me a text message and that will get your name in the drawing. So that that's all you have to do. It's a really simple thing. Share this episode or any episode that may be your favorite and that will get you into the entry for the drawing we will then pick a winner at the end of this month so march 31st or march 30th whichever day i so choose uh will be a day that i will stop and uh, take in all the entries and then put it into some sort of like random number generizer i don't know how i'm necessarily going to do it yet but it will be random we'll pick the person i'll get in contact with that person and we will then send that book church history in plain language by bruce shelley to that person so that's how you can get this book you'll definitely want to enter in to get this book
1: and to continue our discussion of books because we love books on the simple Doctrine podcast uh elijah you have a book recommendation maybe a devotional recommendation for us that people can utilize in their time with the lord
0: all right so if you know me at all You'll know that I actually love liturgy. Liturgy is a huge part of what I look for in a church. How how do they think through the church structure? But I don't think liturgy necessarily just lends itself to only a Sunday morning gathering. I think liturgy is actually something that we do in our everyday life. Uh, so right now I'm taking a class called Christ in Culture. And something that my professor said is that we are— um, worshiping beings or liturgical beings. So everyone worships something. (laughs) And the question is, what are you worshiping? And then the also question is, how are you worshiping? Uh, So as Christians, our hope and desire is that we are worshiping God. Well, in worshiping God, our hope and desire is that we are worshiping him rightly because he does care how we worship. So there is this book by Jonathan Gibson called Be Thou My Vision, A Liturgy for Daily Worship. I have been going through this book on my own as my morning devotion for this last week and I tell you what it it is so rich. It, it it's um it has a ton of collections of different prayers from like the Anglican Common Book of Prayer, it pulls from uh the Valley of Vision, which Noah and I have suggested before. It pulls from uh just a wide variety of solid prayers and it puts it into this book. It then also has all the creeds uh, in there. It has the Westminster and then also the Heidelberg Catechism in there. Uh, And then it also in the very back has a Bible reading plan. And it is the uh, Mishayan. I can't say his last name. Is it Mishayan? McSheen? I think it's McShane. McShane, there we go. McShane uh, Bible reading plan. The Robert Murray McShane. Uh, yeah, Robert Murray McShane reading plan. And it just lays it out for you. It is a very simple thing that you can go through just in your in the morning as you worship. Um, but also with that, it encourages family worship. Uh, so that is something that no and I could have a whole separate conversation about. But hey, if you are a parent with kids, which that's what it means to be a parent... <laughs> Wake up in the morning, and maybe it's not in the morning, maybe it's in the evening, but someday during the, sometime during the day, sit down with your kids and just follow this structure, and it can lead your whole family in worship. I highly encourage people to do that. So that's the that's second book suggestion. The first one is Bruce Shelley's uh, Church History in Plain Language, which we are giving away to one special person, uh, one random special person, and then the second one is one that we are not giving away. I just highly suggest you go get that. And that is Jonathan Gibson's Be Thou My Vision. So let's let's get into this episode. Today we are talking about the Council of Trent. We will talk about what is the Council of Trent in just a little bit. But before we enter into that, let's give a 30-second recap of what the last episode was. So Noah, looking back at the last episode on what we talked about, what would your 30-second recap be?
1: Yeah, so we started, for those who listened last week, Um or the week before, um, we started a series on the differing views of justification and kind of the three main branches of Christianity. So we have, you know, Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, and Eastern Orthodox. Um, And so last week, we started by kind of laying a foundation of the Protestant view of justification and what we would argue Uh, adamantly, is the biblical view of justification. Um, And in short, I would summarize that as we are justified by the grace of God alone through faith in Christ Jesus alone. Mm -hmm. Um, It is God's grace that extends faith to us, and it is God's grace uh, demonstrated in Jesus's coming to earth to live a perfect life, uh, to die an atoning death for our sins, um, where our sins are imputed to him. And then the merit of his perfect life, his righteousness uh, is imputed to the sinner. Um, And so justification, then you can think of it. I think last week we taught or last time we talked about this blessed exchange between Christ. And the sinner, the, the righteousness that is uh, given to us that is does become our own, though we do continue to struggle with sin uh, right now, we have a true righteousness that is from Christ. That is, we can consider our own um, now that is given to us by participation in Christ through faith. Um, so that's kind of the 30 second summary I would give. Um, and then this week, we're going to get into Roman Catholicism. And so I think as we get into that, we want to talk about what we're going to really spend our time on is the Council of Trent, um, which some of you may be familiar with and some of you may not be Um So Elijah, for those who do not know what we're talking about, could you give us just maybe kind of what is the historical context of the Council of Trent? Where did it fall in church history? What was its purpose? Um, How will it inform our discussion today?
0: Yeah, so I probably should have looked up when the date of the Council of Trent was, so that's what I'm doing right now. But before we talk (laughs) about that date— We're going to talk about a very important date in church history, which is 1517, October 31st? 31st. 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 Um, Many of us know that day as Halloween. For Reformed people, that is not Halloween. That is Reformation Day. So on October 31st, uh, 1517, Martin Luther, a Catholic monk, uh, was just going through with his meditations on Scripture and was like, Hey, looking at these things that I'm reading in Scripture and in contrast with what the Catholic Church is actually teaching, uh, here are theses that I want to post for us to have conversation about. He by no means wanted to start a Reformation. He really just wanted to have conversation. But the um, lay people of Germany saw the theses that he posted on the church doors, and they're like, "This this is genius. This is amazing. And uh, shortly before that, the Lord ordained it to be so that the printing press was just created. So these German lay people got these theses and made many copies of it and just spread it throughout Germany. And thus was the birth of the Reformation, uh, which really challenged the Catholic Church view on justification, and specifically their view of works in the process of justification. Uh, which we will kind of talk about that a little bit. So the Reformers, we have these five solas, uh, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, uh, faith alone, sola gracia, grace alone, solas Christus, Christ alone, and then soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And that those are the five pillars of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, really, the Catholic Church, they looked at that and they're like, Heck no to that. (laughs) Uh, We don't believe that that is true. So they looked at what the Protestant Reformation was, and they did something called the Counter-Reformation, which opened up on December 13th, 1545, and then closed on December 4th, 1563. And this Counter-Reformation was given the title the Council of Trent. And that is what we're going to be looking at. And that kind of gives us a good historical context for when this document came to be and why it came to be.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a really important for us to understand that historical context um, because the Council of Trent uh, really took and I think just kind of formalized a lot of teachings of the Catholic Church uh, that had been taught for quite some time before the Council of Trent, but had not been like formally uh, written down and codified as part of their doctrine. Um, And I think why it's really important for us today is um, when you are dealing with Roman Catholicism or people who are Roman Catholics, it is sometimes it's a bit messy to navigate because you have people who go to Roman Catholic churches who don't really hold to necessarily Roman Catholic teaching, um, whether that's through ignorance Um, or I, I mean, there's various, I would say social, social and cultural dynamics, depending on where you're from that goes into that. Um, but then you, but then you have Roman Catholic teaching and, and anyone, the, what we're going to be dealing with to be clear today is not necessarily every individual person who is a Roman Catholic, um, some who are genuine Christians, um, -hmm. and, I would argue many that are not genuine Christians, Mm -hmm. but what we're really going to be interacting with is this is the official adopted teaching of the Roman Catholic church. So wherever you stand, whether you are in a Roman Catholic church, whether you're Protestant, whether you know, you have friends or family that are Roman Catholic, the reality is this is what the teach the church teaches. This is what they hold to. So whether or not that person individually believes this, this is what we're going to be dealing with. And, and maybe this can be a way for you to open up some conversations and some dialogues about that. Um, so don't take this as we're addressing every individual in the yep. Roman Catholic Church. But we're we are going to address the structural overarching teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that is normative and adopted. Um, so I just want that to be clear that this is not personal attacks. Yeah, on anybody Roman Catholic. Um, we just want to have an honest dialogue about their theology.
0: Yeah. And just to echo that, this is a conversation specifically about the institution of the Roman Catholic Church. And when we say institution, they would say whatever is not connected to the Church of Rome is not the actual church. Right. I, I definitely rebuke that. I, I do not believe that whatsoever. But basically, because they of their view of tradition of their view of um, authority of things like that. The Pope holds equal authority to scripture. Now that doesn't mean everything he says is in their mind a a quote unquote sovereign decree. But what it does mean is that there are moments where the Pope can say, I'm speaking as the mouthpiece of God. And this boom, there it is. It's now new Catholic dogma. And mm-hmm. that that's problematic. That is very problematic. Um, So part of the reason why we're looking at Roman Catholicism in the next week Eastern Orthodoxy is, one question I was asked was, should we call Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox um, believers our brothers in Christ? Um, And I think this will help us navigate that and bring wisdom into how we should view our relationships with these different sects of quote-unquote and then also sometimes not quote-unquote Christianity. Um, Because, like Noah was saying, there are genuine believers in Roman Catholicism. Likewise, there are genuine believers within, within Eastern Orthodoxy. But what do we do when some of their doctrines are at best, heterodox, at worst, full-on heretical. Um, and, and that's what we're really going to talk about today are these uh, doctrines or responses that the Catholic Church had to the Reformation as the Reformation was really desiring to see what Scripture said about faith, about justification, and about salvation. So if we believe that salvation is by faith alone and one is justified by faith alone and the works of Christ alone, then what is the Roman Catholic response? And that that is what we're going to be looking at specifically three individual canons that are presented in the Council of Trent. So let's let's dive into this conversation. Noah, why don't you read canon number nine?
1: All right, so Canon 9 of the Council of Trent says, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema.
0: Anathema. What, what does that mean? <laughs> because uh, I, that's not common language.
1: That anathema means uh, damned. Yeah. And we see that same language, for example, in Galatians 1, um, verses 8 and 9. Paul says to the Galatian church um, that if anyone teaches to you a different gospel than the one that we taught, whether it's an angel, or a man, let him be anathema, let him be damned. Um. So they're using, I mean, that is severe language. Yep. I mean, that is, to be clear, an all r- outright condemnation on anyone who preaches Justification salvation by faith, by faith alone, by grace alone. So, so I don't want anybody to think we're interacting with a straw man when we say that the Roman Catholic officially... Church officially teaches that anyone who believes that we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone is not a Christian. Yep. They're a heretic. Yep. To be damned. And, and to be clear, this is a
0: doctrine that is held today by the institution of the Roman Catholic Church. So I'm going to be rather blunt right now. I know many people that are like, why can't Protestants and Catholics just? unite and just be friendly with one another and just just acknowledge that they worship the same god and that they hold a lot of the same doctrines just with a few inconsistencies here and there look just to be honest when it comes to the institution of the roman catholic church there will be no unity between protestants and the roman catholic church until they get rid of these statements there's not they they need reform because as of right now they see me as a damnable heretic. They see the Protestant church as damnable heretics. So, yeah, I am a little bit upset about that because when scripture clearly teaches that it is justification by faith alone, and we're going to look at some of their proof texts here in a little bit for why they say that it has to be faith and works for justification. Um, But when they say, when they look at what we see scripture say, and, and then they twist it and say, No, it's not just justification by faith alone. It's faith and works. And you're saying it's justification by faith alone. You're you're a heretic. You're damned. You're going to hell. Like, I'm not going to be friendly with that. Just being honest. So that's why I'm willing to have conversations with individuals within the Catholic Church. But when it comes to the actual institution of the Catholic Church, I am going to be rather brazen. Because they see what scripture teaches to be actually heretical, just, just being upfront. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm a little bit heated right now already, but I'm, I'm going to calm down.
1: Well, <laughs> I think like, how could you, how could you be unified? How could we have any shared footing? Right. Cause yeah. this is not, this is not a disagreement over how we, uh, how we administer baptism. Yeah. This is not a disagreement over how we administer and view the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Though those are things that are, like, important. I would have strong disagreements with the Roman Catholic church about how we administer the Lord's Supper, for example, and how we view that. This is in a category. that's a little different in that, I mean, all doctrine is important. All doctrine matters. Um, I think we should be bold and stand on all doctrines that we hold to be scriptural. Um, some doctrines, we can have an open posture to dialogue, mm. to disagree. Uh, for, for
0: example, within Protestantism, cessationism versus continuous. So what the apostolic gifts of speaking in tongues, prophecy, right. healing, is that something that is still going on today? I mean, I think we can get into some dangerous territory that needs to be absolutely rejected on the continuous side of apostolic gifts but I'm willing to have open dialogue with people. Uh, there's right. people like Matt Chandler, who is a continuous, that believes in the continuation of apostolic gifts. I'm happy to have conversation with him because this is not something that is at the root of salvation.
1: Right. I can disagree and I would disagree strongly just to put my cards on the table. Yeah. I would disagree strongly with a continuous position um, for a number of reasons, but I can hold faith and fellowship with someone who is a continuous and I will, I will gladly do so. And I will Um, break
0: bread with that person.
1: Like literally take communion
0: alongside with that person.
1: I I know wonderful pastors. I know wonderful uh, friends. I mean, wonderful people who are very devoted Christians who believe that. Um, that is holistically different. When we're talking about justification, we are talking about a subject that is at the very heart of the gospel. This is not a secondary or tertiary issue to use that language. This is the very definition of how, how do we become saved? This is soteriology at its most basic level. How are we justified? How does sinful man be made right with God? Yep. And on that issue we cannot have room for debate and disagreement because it's salvation itself. Yep. We are either right or we are wrong. We are either Christian or we are not. This is not an issue where there's room for error. We have to know what the Bible teaches and we can have, I guess, we can't have errors in maybe how we flush out our doctrine of justification and some of its ramifications. But as to the very core, are you saved by the works of Christ alone, by Christ alone, or are you saved by Christ and your works? Are you saved by grace alone or by grace and works? And that's where...
0: Is it scripture alone that informs our view of life, of salvation, of of um the fallenness of man or is it going to be scripture and an equal authority of tradition and then also the pope (laughs) like uh and then also we'll, we'll watch a video a little clip from a video here in a little bit but is it going to be for the glory of god alone or is it going to be for the glory of god mary and the saints like right huge topics that we're talking about
1: and i think like if we go to this again to this canon number nine the key word that I think I would point out to people listening um, is the word alone, because there are Protestants who have the mistaken idea that uh, Roman Catholics don't believe in salvation by grace. Mm-hmm. And the reality is Roman Catholics do hold to grace and salvation. And um, they view it as uh, grace is infused to the person through baptism as an yep. event. I mean, this goes back, way back to Augustine. Um, I love Augustine. love Augustine's theology. One yeah. thing that Augustine taught that I disagree with was that baptism infuses grace that um, basically um, counteracts the effects. I mean, it's a really terrible way to put it, but um, it, it does away with original sin. Yeah. And this person then lives a life in the church where they they grow in grace and grow in righteousness before God. And that's still a version of that is still the Roman Catholic teaching today, that we have an infusion of grace and in infant baptism. And then through the sacraments, through um, penance, through indulgences still, might shock some people to know that Roman Catholic Church still practices indulgences. Uh, could you
0: define they that don't... really quick?
1: Okay, so yeah, yeah. Um, Another So in the Reformation, one of Luther's main uh, beefs with the Roman Catholic Church was that they were selling indulgences, which was um, essentially would pardon a person or remove time in purgatory for that person or for a family member or someone close to them. And so by performing a certain act or or buying an indulgence um, by paying money you could reduce someone's sentence in purgatory mm. so they get to heaven that much faster.
0: And and here's something that is rather significant in that, because I think I think in this conversation it would be rather easy for someone to walk away from here and think, Oh, Elijah and Noah do not want people to be doing good things and, yes. and like living holy, righteous lives. That that is not at all what we're saying. But this points to another thing in the Catholic Church of selling indulgences. It's not even that they were having people do like actually good works, like things that actually benefited others. It was all things that just fit their own wealth and and fed their own power. Now, again, we still reject that we are justified by any form of our works. It's nothing but filthy rags before God. But that doesn't mean that uh, I've heard it put this way. The gospel is opposed to earning, not effort. We can't earn our salvation, but in light of the salvation that has been gifted to us, we should respond in good works.
1: Yeah. And I think what goes back to what we talked about last week or last time, that we we want to be careful to define. We're not talking about salvation as a whole. And we are saying we would affirm that if a person has been truly justified, works will result. Um, Yeah. Through justification, through the work of God in the heart of a sinner, um, we are reborn and God continually conforms our desires to his desires. And so we grow in sanctification. Um, And so we want to be careful with that because we're not just dismissing works as part of the Christian life. We're not antinomians. right? We believe that we ought to do good works, but not to be justified. Like you were saying, Hoyer, That's that's a different discussion. And so the indulgences, Luther had a major issue with that because he saw uh, people were essentially purchasing their way uh, out of hell or out of um, purgatory and into heaven. And even today, the Roman Catholic Church still performs indulgences. They don't sell indulgences now i mean they dealt with that at the council of trent so that's a plus i suppose yeah but they still you know for example if you if you the pope is speaking somewhere and you can make a pilgrimage to go hear the pope speak then he'll grant an indulgence for everybody who came and here's the problem with that the problem is as they say the second part of canon nine so they say um against someone who says it's necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, you know, they're affirming the opposite, right? They say, so it is necessary that someone has to be prepared and disposed by his, the action of his will to be justified. Meaning, there has to be an effusion of grace, there has to be works performed, um, confession, taking the Lord's Supper, um I mean obviously baptism starts it off. Um penance. Marriage. Marriage. Yes, different. I mean those things are not just, you know, Christian. I as a Protestant I would affirm the beauty of marriage. I think there's grace, a grace in marriage, a common grace that God gives to all mankind. Um I think the Lord's Supper is vitally important for the yeah. Christian life. But well, I do not I do think,
0: think I do think there is an aspect in which you feed upon like, like the Lord's Supper is a feeding aspect. It it does help with grace, <laughs> but it's not right. that we're earning grace or anything like that.
1: Right. It's not a. It does not become merit for salvation. No. Um, it and it does not become the means by which we we stay in the covenant community. Yeah. So and so, let's go. Maybe let's go to some of these texts that they yeah. have. And just kind of break down how they use those um, in their teaching. Yeah. So the f- the first one they have is James two, chapter seventeen 2,
0: through twenty. So verses I've, seventeen through twenty. I've got that one pulled up right now. I can read that if you, have you
1: are already. Read yeah.
0: So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But if someone will say, "You have faith, and I have works," show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And let's see, through 20, yeah. So do you want to be shown, you, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So they look at this passage and they're like, boom, see, works is required of you. And, you know, uh, we look at this passage and we're like, yeah, there is a huge emphasis on works. But what is what is what what is going on here? What what, what type of faith is being presented here? Yeah. And I think that is really the core of this question. Of th- this does talk against the antinomianism, nom- nominalism, what Noah said earlier. <laughs> um, antinomianism. Yeah, antinomian that word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Words are hard for me. Uh, people who are like oh, sweet, I'm saved, I can abuse God's grace as much as I want. So it does speak against that, but what we are seeing here are two different type of faiths that are being presented that does not contradict what Paul presents in other letters of faith. The faith that, that James presents that, that produces works is actually very much in line with what Paul presents of faith, but it is talking about the outer, the the um the result of that faith so it's not a faith that earns that's not what james is presenting here it's not a faith that earns your salvation but it is a faith that the works actually out are an outflowing of the salvation that's already been gifted to you and i think that's a huge significance that we point out so Noah, what what are some things that you want to pull out from this passage to kind of rebuttal that, they're using, that the Catholic Church is using as a proof text?
1: I think, you know, if we look at to James as a whole, and we take into context his whole letter, right? And I think what we get, we're getting this picture of an antinomian audience, an audience mm-hmm. that is abusing the grace extended in the gospel as a license for sin. And... James is making very clear that it does us no good to simply know intellectually Mm. the truth. And I think that's what he points to when he says, um, for example, he says, uh, you say you believe, well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder in verse 19. And I think the point he's making is that there is, what we're talking about, there's a type of faith that saves, as you're pointing out, and it's even demons believe in God, even demons understand that God exists, that's not the problem, but their faith is not a faith that saves, it's not a faith that leads to righteousness and good works, um, and what we're arguing for is a kind of faith that does works that god has commanded us to do it's the kind of faith that is if someone has true faith they will obey right and so they even point to abraham in james 2 you know james points to abraham abraham as paul points out uh in romans abraham was justified before he was circumcised he was justified by belief first and then he was circumcised and administered circumcision to his household um, as a seal of that righteousness as the outworking of mm-hmm. that faith so it's not that he was justified um, in the sense that he was um, saved and I think too I would point out that there's there's different ways that word justified is used in the Bible and I think that's an important distinction um, justified sometimes means vindicated. Yep. And we pointed this out on our last episode. Um, Jesus was vindicated when he rose from the dead. The resurrection was Jesus' vindication. It was He was justified by it. But we don't take that to mean that Jesus was then declared righteous or made righteous. Mm-hmm. Because Jesus was already righteous. Yes. He did not need to be justified. Rather, he was vindicated by his resurrection. And in the same way... James is using justified. Abraham was not justified in the sense that he was saved by offering up Isaac on the altar, but that he was vindicated by obeying the word of God. His faith was shown to be authentic. His faith was vindicated as true faith because of the action that followed.
0: I have a couple different illustrations to just kind of go alongside this. Uh, The first illustration is... Someone buys a ticket for you to go to a baseball game. If you show up to that baseball game without that ticket, you're not going to be let in. Well, well, you may look at that and be like, "Well, it was already done for me." Well, sh- bring the ticket. That that's a condition for you to get in. You didn't work to get that ticket. Someone gave it to you. It was a gift. So, that, that's one thing with faith. Like Christ did the work for you. Faith is not a work but there's kind of this condition of faith, which is gifted to us. The second thing is, um, a faith that works itself out or a faith that, um, a faith that has works. So there's these people, and this was actually an illustration that was given in Dr. DeYoung's class. Um, there's these people that do these crazy things on tight lines across like the grand Canyon or Niagara falls or things like that. And, uh, They'll go, they'll go back and forth on like a unicycle or they'll, they'll walk across it and they'll do these crazy flips or they're juggling something. And, and as they're doing this, people are just in awe and wonder. They're like, oh, that's so cool. And then they ask the question, who thinks I could carry a person across this canyon? And people are like, yeah, 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 we think you can do that. And then he asks, so who wants to get on my back? And no one raises their hand. Sure, you could say that those people had faith, but it wasn't a real faith because they weren't willing to actually trust this guy. Right. So that's kind of what's going on here in James. James is pointing out that a faith that is a genuine faith actually trusts God. And, and that trust walks. is
1: expressed in action. Yeah. Right. So
0: that's what we see with Abraham because it points right to the sacrifice of Christ, of, of Isaac. He trusted God. He, him going to to uh, Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac was a trust of God. And, and Hebrews points to this faith as well. That says, Christ, uh, Abraham knew that God would be faithful to his covenant. That he was going to work out. So when he went to go sacrifice Isaac, maybe he thought... Oh, maybe Isaac will be resurrected or something like that. But he knew that Isaac was a was a covenant child; that he was a seed that was promised to him to to then make many offspring. Hmm. Abraham had faith. He knew that God would go, would come through with His promise. So that's why he went and then acted.
1: Yeah, I think that's really really good. Um, and I think even I believe it's Hebrews makes that point that that Abraham believed in the resurrection and, and that's why he takes Isaac. Um, and i have to look up the exact verse, but um, let's move to, you know, we're it's a really good discussion. There's so much more to get through. Um, let's move to Galatians. They have two texts in Galatians that they would point to um, also. So they look at Galatians 5, chapter five, verse six, which I'll read real quick. Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, working through love. And then they also point to Galatians 6.15, which is similar. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And so they would point to these two texts um, as an affirmation that we are saved by works and faith and i would point out initially um, i think just the great irony of of this proof text is the context of galatians and you don't have to go far back in galatians 3 paul says this starting in verse 1 and i'll just i'll just read um through verse 6. paul says "O foolish galatians who has bewitched you it was before your eyes that christ jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so the great irony of this proof text is they say, uh, see, Paul says it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but faith working through love. And so they just take the word working, and they're like, oh, that's a proof text. But the irony is that Paul has literally said, prior to this, you have, by way of question, he's implies the answer, right? You have been, you, have you been, begun in the spirit and then perfected in the flesh no the obvious answer is you have not you've begun in the spirit you've begun by grace and you are being perfected in the spirit and by grace you are not being perfected by works of the law it's not an infusion of grace an infusion of the spirit and then you work out the rest by your flesh by your striving that's what the israelites were doing that was the very error of the Galatians was that they did not believe and I think some people I did not really understand this actually till recently but the Galatian error was not that they rejected the grace of the gospel and they went back to legalism the error of the Galatians was yes Jesus yes the grace of Jesus what Jesus has done yes the crucifixion but just to be sure Let's keep the law Yep. just to be sure let's be circumcised. So their error was grace and works. 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 It's the or very error of Roman Catholicism. And so it's this great irony that you quote this, but the whole book testifies against what you're saying. Against what you're saying. You're wrong. Paul's something whole to, po- point something to point is that out you, you are not saved by faith and works. You are saved by faith alone. Yeah,
0: something to point out with Galatians. If you read the beginning of every one of Paul's epistles, he will always say something like, I thank God for you. I've been praying for you. I I, this like just something of like the, the praiseworthiness of what is going on there. That's not the case here. Paul does say in verse three, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever, ever. Amen. Then in verse 6, without saying anything about how he is thankful for them or anything like that, this is the first thing he says outside of his greeting. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be a curse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That I think this also speaks against the authority of the Pope, just just to throw that out there. He's <laughs> he's come in and preached a different gospel. Like, it, I just don't understand how Galatians can be seen as one of their proof texts.
1: <laughs> you could basically say, like, rebuttal, Paul. Just, that's my card on the table. Paul is my rebuttal. It's just, <laughs> like, it's holistically against what you're teaching. I mean, just, and it's just, I just think it's so ironic that you would go to Galatians because you're so clearly just taking, I mean, this is proof texting at its worst, right? Yeah. You're, you're ignoring the context, ignoring the flow of the letter. You're not, paying attention to Paul's point in the rest of the letter, you're just snatching this one verse out of context that seems to fit your point. And in doing so you basically shoot yourself in the foot because you draw people's attention to the very letter that would condemn your view of salvation. Yep. It's ridiculous. Uh,
0: We have so much more we could say about that. Let's, let's move on to the next Canon that, that I pulled out from the council of Trent and Hey, you can find the council of Trent online. And just look at this document yourself. But Canon 11. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ. (sighs) Okay, sorry. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole (laughs) imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity, which is poured forth in the hearts by the Holy Ghost, it remains in them or also that the grace by which we are justified is only the goodwill of God, let him be anathema. I'm sorry. Is the grace of Christ not enough? I I, I know people pull this out of context to talk about different things. Look at the thief on the cross. Right. Like, what about my
1: grandpa, who accepted Christ on his deathbed? Right, it just, I think the I think the thief on the cross is such a, a great example, right? Because there's no place for him in Roman Catholic Catholicism. He cannot be saved, right? Because what are they talking about here? They're talking about the the grace, the charity, which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost. What they're talking about is that infusion of grace, right? Yeah. That beginning in baptism, the thief on the cross was not baptized. He wasn't he was a sinner to the day he died and the sole means of his justification was Christ yep was he believed what does he say this man is not guilty right he's not like us he's not a thief on the cross he's done nothing wrong he is the messiah even if he did not understand like 99.9 percent of who Jesus was in simplicity of belief. He just knew this man does not deserve to die. This man is not like me. And it is just Jesus saying, you can come. That is the means of his justification. And if you have not seen it, one of the greatest preaching moments in the history of preaching, Alistair Begg has this incredible an incredible part of a sermon where he talks about this that it is solely the merit of Christ to, that gets the thief on the cross into heaven there's yep. no other explanation so if you haven't seen it here's my daily plug go look it up it's fantastic it's just I, I i i'm
0: frustrated right now because i do not see how this is not just a slap in the face to the work of Christ right i just Christ did it he's done it all there, there's nothing else that needs to be done. And they're looking at the work of Christ and they say, spit that out. Right. We need to add works to our salvation.
1: I thought, uh, I mean, look at the end, they say, or also that the grace by which we are justified is only the good will of God. I mean, I think of Exodus, right? <laughs> and the. I mean, just the Torah, but Exodus and Deuteronomy, where God has redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He's redeemed, redeemed them from slavery. And what does he say? It was not because you were greater than the other nations. It wasn't because you had this merit. It was because you were the least. You were the worst. You were, did not merit it. It was so that my grace could be shown that I saved you. That's why I saved you out of Egypt not because of anything you've done. And that's the very point that they're condemning. Yep. Israel was saved by the goodwill of God. Abraham was called by the goodwill of God. Noah was found grace in the eyes of the Lord because of the goodwill of God. And that's continued to revelation. David was called. (laughs) Yes. It's, it's David should die for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, but his sin is taken away. By what? The good will of, will God. of God. The mercy Ephesians of God. Ephesians chapter
0: one, chapter, chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The end. Amen. Nothing else. Why do we need this canon, Catholic Church? Honestly, like if you are a Catholic priest and you affirm this canon, like I would honestly love to have a conversation with you to see how you can justify this as a worthy statement.
1: Right. How do you get past, okay, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, right? <clears throat> for, he, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You say, if anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or the sole remission of sins, let him be anathema. Paul says, you've been made righteous solely because of Christ's righteousness. Yeah. Your righteousness is imputed. Uh, He says in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no man may boast. Yeah. Right? I don't want to be too simplistic. But it is, I think, really true that this is why at the Reformation, you talked about this earlier, Elijah, The de- so much of this debate rests around what is our final authority for rule and faith? What is the final word on doctrine? And for the Reformers, it was the Holy Scriptures, mm-hmm. right? They still said, yes, we need church history. We need tradition. The, cre- the creeds and confessions of the early church Yes, we need the Nicene Creed. We need the, the Council of Chalcedon. Those are useful things because they articulate scripture. But what is the when it comes down to it, what's the final rule? It's the word of God. Yep. Whereas Roman Catholicism says the scriptures and an equal weight to tradition. So that our discussion becomes less about what the scriptures principally teach and about what theologians who are imperfect have said throughout church history yeah <clears throat> and we ignore these explicit statements like Ephesians 1 like Ephesians 2 8 to 10 like 2 Corinthians 5 21 that make so very clear it it is the very imputation of Christ's righteousness that saves you it is by his blood alone that you are saved yeah and praise be to God
0: I want to back up a little bit because I got super heated there. (laughs) I am heated because these are people's souls at stake. Right. I'm not just heated because we disagree on doctrine. I am heated because literal, actual people with souls made in the image of God are being deceived to think that they can earn their salvation. And it, it is damning. It is sending people to hell. Right. So yeah, I am going to be heated because people are going to hell because they think that their righteousness is worth something. Right. It's not your righteousness when when you get into heaven and let's say Peter asks you, "Why do you deserve to be here?" And you say, "Well, I believe Jesus died for my sins and I did some really good works." Why would Peter not just look at you and then just say, "What what why do you need to add to the work of Christ? Was that not sufficient for you? Of course, this is a hypothetical scenario. But <laughs> like like but honestly though, why do we need to add to the works of Christ? Is is our Christ is, is is what Christ did on the cross is that not sufficient enough for our salvation?
1: Is it not? I think to I th- I think of the people who struggle with sin after conversion. And you have in the Roman, I mean, Luther is the expected consequence of Roman Catholicism, right? Yep. If you don't know Luther, when he was a monk and on Augustinian monk, he would spend hours in the confessional um, because he was tormented by his unrighteousness. He was tormented by the fact that, he could not do what was right he con- was condemned by the law at so many points and i think just on a very practical pastoral level you know that's what you're pointing out elijah that's those people cannot have any security how could they have any hope yep because their hope is placed still partially in themselves and that is a, that burden tears people apart and so there's these people who have struggled with sins. And I know you've dealt with this and I've dealt with this. People who come who are broken, discouraged, defeated, because they feel that they're gonna lose their righteousness. If they if they if I can't get rid of this sin, if I can't be perfectly faithful, then I won't be saved. Then I'm not really one of God's and I think just on a practical level, well, this is why we're, again, why we're heated is because it's heart-wrenching. It's painful because those people need the gospel. They need the simple truth that in your sin, Christ loves you. I mean, it's that classic Young Restless Reform movement m- moment where Matt Chandler is preaching about the rose, Right, and the pastor who passes around the rose and everybody touches it at the end, it's stinky and it's wilted and it's gross. And he says, Well, who would want this? Right, who wants the imperfect rose? And you know, Matt Chandler in a very Matt Chandler moment yells out, Jesus wants the rose, that's the gospel, and that's the point. And that continues after justification, and that's why this is important, it's because we're justified by Christ and we're kept. By Christ, That's what we talked yeah. about last time, that our salvation, our security rests in Christ, who is our surety. Yep. And so for that person who's trampled, who's struggling with sin in a, a world ridden by sin, who struggles with the res, those habits of sin that are have been built over years and is trying to walk free, they're crushed under the legalism of Roman Catholicism, whether they show it outwardly or not. And there's only true freedom for the believer who can come back to the father, the prodigal son, and know that they are still loved, that he will still embrace them with open arms, that he knows their sin. He knows every skeleton in the closet, Mm -hmm. and he profoundly loves them. That's a beautiful gospel. And that's the gospel that we, that's why we fight for it. Because like you said, this is... Eternity. This is salvation at stake. This is not just semantics. This is the very basic core belief of Christianity. How do we be made right with God?
0: Yeah. Uh, let Let's read the next canon. Then we can start wrapping things up. And if we have time, we'll we'll pull up the American Gospels video on the Roman Catholic view of salvation and also their views of sin and the, that how that affects salvation. Uh, so, Canon 13. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sin for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies us, let him be anathema. Just, again, it, it goes back to everything Noah just said. Where Where's the confidence? How... How is it that when scripture gives us the assurance of our salvation that always, always, 100% of the time points us to Christ and what he has done, that the Catholic Church can come right around and say, phooey to that. Get rid of that. It just, it doesn't add up. There's no assurance. There's no hope in a true, genuine Roman Catholic walk. There's not. Because it's all about your works. Yes, we they believe that Christ did something on the cross. But it's not enough. I have to work it out. Christ laid the foundation, but I need to build the rest of the house. That That's basically what they're saying. Mm-hmm. But no, Christ built the house. It's his. It's all his. He's done it all.
1: It, it's, it, it all just, it's all Christ. Right? Christ is the cornerstone. He is... The, the the gatekeeper, right? He has the keys of David to open the house and shut the house to whoever he wills, right? He's the steward. He's the king. He's the priest, the prophet, the cornerstone. He is everything. That is why the cross is the center of Christianity. Yep. That's why it's what we stand. This is why Luther said that the justification is the article on which the church stands or falls. Yep. It's because that's the very center and at its core, you're getting at, you know, Elijah, this basically, the question is, is Christ sufficient? Is the work of Jesus sufficient or is it not? Was the son of God who became man, who took on human flesh, who suffered and died for the sins of his people and was resurrected in vindication of his perfect life. Is that enough? Or do we have to add, is our savior sufficient? Is he glorious? Is he the one we worship and adore? Or do we throw ourselves into the mix? At the core of the question is, is Jesus enough? Is he a truly sufficient savior?
0: And I know that sometimes people look at people in the Reformed tradition or theologians and they're just like, man, they're only in their heady space. And why, why do they need to talk about something called the pactum salutis or the covenant of redemption <laughs> and covenant of grace? Like, can't, can't Jesus just be enough? And, and to that, yes, Jesus is enough. But these doctrines bring affirmation to what Jesus has done. It's not we're not just being doctrinal just for dogmatic sake. Yes, we, we should be dogmatic, but we're dogmatic because of Christ. It is It is a defending of what Christ has done. So when we look at the pactum salutis, also known as a covenant of redemption and it points to this uh, pretemporal uh, conversation or covenant that God and the Son made with each other that that Christ would redeem a people of God's own choosing. That brings assurance to that to the, the saved people, to the elect people of Christ. It, it 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 cuts down what the Catholic Church is right now doing, and and still affirms of this Council of Trent that that rejects any statement of we are justified by faith alone. Well, how, how can we say we are justified by faith alone? Look at the Pactum Salutis. Christ said, "I will fulfill this for this people that you have given me." Look at the covenant of grace in which God condescended to man and made a covenant with us saying, I will fulfill this covenant. Mm-hmm. Look, at, look at, the, at, at the Abrahamic covenant in this unified covenant of grace that God, when the covenant was made to Abraham in chapter, Genesis chapter 15, God made Abraham fall into a deep sleep so that it was God himself alone that walked through the cut up animals. god is the one that fulfills this covenant he does the work christ does the work on the cross and and all things belong to him so pastorally as noah and i desire to be pastors later on that's why we are going to be so upfront about this pactum salutis and the covenant of grace because it points to christ and, and it teaches us how to then present the work of Christ and how to comfort the sinner that is grieved by his sin. How to comfort the person who feels like they are in the pit of despair because their sin just seems to continue having victory over them. We point to Christ, not any deed of our own. And, and that's why this is such an important conversation because it doesn't just affect this, this, just, this heady space. Our view of justification will then affect our whole person.
1: Yeah, this is deeply, deeply practical. It's uh, and and through all of church history, you know, that's been the central question: is how are we saved? Um, because it's everything, right? I mean, the Christological controversies in the third and fourth century, um, the fifth into the fifth century those were about soteriology. How are we saved? Um, and I think it's just, again, it's to the glorious praise of God that we are saved by grace alone, Mm -hmm. um, by the work of Christ alone, through faith in that work alone. And when we're engaged with discussions with people who are Roman Catholics, um, when you're in you know engaged in that that discussion, that debate. I think this is why it's so important that we have we are upfront and honest about this. Cause it is uncomfortable. You know, mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable to tell someone well, no, we're not unified. Right? We're not we're not the same church. Yep. There may there are people who are truly part of the church in the Roman Catholicism, but and, and, and to be clear, the sad reality is that there's a lot of Protestants who hold to a very similar view. Yep. You're Right? Not maybe codified by evangelical teaching, but they hold in practicality to some version of Jesus, and then I have to kind of be a good person to get to heaven. And so this is not just something we discuss with Roman Catholics. This is a discussion we have with other people who are believers. This is what, you know, a discussion we have with people who have this, distorted view of Christianity when we're evangelizing. And I think when you think about, you know, we're talking about doxology, orthodoxy that leads to doxology. I mean, Elijah, I think you just really, I mean, you nailed it like this. It's just, it's beautiful. It's practical. It's what the sinner and their sin can rest upon is the work of Christ. And to the Roman Catholic desire for works, this is where that comes in, right? Right. Not in the way that they would say, but that gospel is transformative. It not only justifies, it transforms. And the person who knows that will struggle with sin. Yes, but it is only the grace of Christ that they rest on. And it is that grace that transforms them into the image of Christ. That's what gets them there. That's what leads to good works, right? That's what James is talking about. Abraham's vindicated by his faith because he believes in God. He trusts God. He's so convinced of the goodness of God, the glory of God, the sufficiency of God. He does not need the answers he can offer up Isaac because he knows whatever happens. Resurrection, no resurrection. My faith is in God, even when I don't always know how that works out. That's what leads to the good works, right? We we give up our sinful desires. We abandon the way of this world because we're so utterly convinced by the truth of the gospel that he's enough. Everything, he's all I need. I can give up the rest. And if you want a church, if the church is to do good works, if we are to be the light that we're called to be, We have to start with a true version of the gospel, not a version, the true gospel, the only version, the only truth of the gospel, so that we are truly propelled to good works, not out of uh, a sense of we have to save our own skin, but out of worship because of the truth that transforms and the spirit that enlightens and works in us what is pleasing in God's sight according to the work of God.
0: Yeah, I think that is a good ending place. I know that I originally mentioned the American Gospel video that we were going to show, but with us already being an hour into this episode, we're going to just put that in the link I definitely, or in the description. I definitely encourage you, if you have extra time, to go find that video and watch it as it explains a little bit more about the Catholic faith um, and their view of venial sins and mortal sins and how that then impacts why they think we need to work work for our salvation um so yeah go ahead and go watch that video um and yeah uh we did get heated in this conversation uh because (laughs) it it is a very it's a serious conversation and when when someone is spitting on the work of my savior my redeemer i'm not just gonna sit back and just Bat my eyes and wink at that. <laughs> do not disgrace the work of my Savior. Mm. Do not. Because he is the only hope for this world. And if you're disgracing that, it shame on you, honestly. Christ is, is our hope. He is our salvation. So, yes, we got heated about that because do not... It shouldn't be so that we are disgracing the work of Christ. But also, if you are someone who are who is in the Roman Catholic faith and you came across this for whatever reason, and for whatever reason you're still listening to the end of this episode and weren't so put <laughs> off by the heatedness, really consider the work of Christ and consider what he has done for your salvation, for the salvation of his people, and rest in that. Don't think that you need to add any sort of work to that. Uh, and and just let that lead you to worship. Let that lead you to doxology and, and comfort and peace and knowing that you don't need to do anything to accomplish your salvation. It's all in Christ alone. So, Amen. Yeah. Let's, so, let's wrap up.
1: Yeah. Well, very, very well said. It's a great place to leave it. Um, just by way of reminder, real quick, before we close the show, like Elijah said at the beginning, um, go ahead and share this episode um on facebook or on instagram Uh, make sure to let elijah know um you can either message him directly on social media or if you know his have his number you can text him so that you can possibly win church history in plain language by bruce shelley um yeah use liturgy in your worship and your devotions it's a I would highly affirm that. Um, And then join us next time. Uh, Our next episode will be on Eastern Orthodoxy. And so do you think think we'll be able to get through that episode without getting so heated? You know, I'm, I'm curious to see, I think (laughs) some of the reasons we get so heated on this episode is because this one's so familiar and it's kind of near and personal. And I think it'll be interesting to see how, Orthodox is in some ways very foreign to us because as Protestants we tend to be less acquainted with it um, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to be very interesting um I know Elijah's been putting in a lot of hard work into studying and, and preparing and um so I'm really excited to just be able to talk with him ask him some questions and and let him just kind of he's gonna really help us to understand that view and and you know, some of the nuances of it. And I think it'll be very fascinating and very beneficial for people um, who aren't very familiar with Ether and Orthodox um, tradition. So really hope you join us for that one next time. I think it's going be really, really, really good. Um, Elijah, you want to go ahead and close us out? Until
0: next time, glorify God through worship, through the study of his word, and through the proclamation of his word. Bye. Bye.